from the top of the charts to the dusty $1 bin and everything in between, it's time for another review on Life to Labyrinth. I don't know, like, I gotta say, this is probably the first album that just didn't really jump out to me at all. Like, I still enjoyed listening to it, but man, an hour of it was, that was about my limit, like... <laughs> we had talked before the first episode, like offline, um, about how eventually we're going to hit albums that dragged. Man, I got to tell you, this was one of them for me. Yeah, it was, in, it was enjoyable, but sitting down to listen in one go, ooh, there was some rough bits there. It was one of those um, albums for me, and I kind of agree with you, if I'm honest. Even though, like, this is one that, although I suggested it, I've never listened to all of it before. I'd only heard songs off of it, and it was sort of like on my bucket list to listen to. Oh, that's cool. Um, yeah, so I'm glad that I did, but I'm also glad that it was um, a 1970s LP, so it was only like 45 minutes long, and it wasn't, you know, a 90-minute long 15-song CD or something like that. Yeah. I guess CDs were 75 minutes, but... I don't know any about that shit. <laughs> <laughs> I barely use CDs, man. CDs were long before I got into loving and appreciating music because oh, okay. it was always like, Oh, that's my dad's shit. He's lame. I can't do that. That's astonishing to me. So you came of age and if you're playing the life to labyrinth bingo, this is where we talk about how we're different ages. Um, so hit that on your bingo card. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, like so you didn't, what was, was it all MP3s by the time you kind of came to listening to your own music? Yeah. So like I had, the old fucking Sony Walkman or Sony Discman, whichever it was called, like little CD player. You clipped on Discman, your yeah. yeah, clipped on your belt like a you know budget boombox. Did um, you have the bitch in yellow one? No, the I sport one the, that everyone wanted. No, I had the like blue gray. Okay, yeah, yeah. Oh man, it was England. Yellow was far too exciting a color for them. <laughs> so, <laughs> the I cars was, were brown, right? I had it. <laughs> Um, and when we get into talking about like our first albums and stuff, the first album I bought was on CD, but that was, it was just long before I really ever had kind of a passion for listening to music Yeah. at the time, right? Like PCs were like becoming a thing. Laptops were like brand new to the market, like personal laptops. And that's kind of where I spent those, you know, three, four years. Mm-hmm. Um, I was really getting into like computer tech and that always interested me more. It wasn't until probably when I was like, I don't know, 16, 17, when I started really like putting on music just to have it on and realizing how much I enjoyed music in general. And like, so for context, I remember going to the store with my dad to buy his first CD player. And I think I was, I was 10 and 94. It was probably around then. It was probably like early 90s. Um, I don't know if he got it on like a special sale. For some reason, my memory is we like waited outside the store for it to open. So I don't know if it was some kind of like door crasher sale. I don't remember it being winter time. So it wouldn't have been Boxing Day. And Black Friday didn't exist in those days in Canada. So I don't like and my memory could be wrong. But yeah, I remember going in with him to buy it. Before that, we he had tapes and records, but he had kind of long ago abandoned his records and he mostly listened to tapes 
but he didn't listen to like he didn't buy tapes so everything that he had on tape i think a lot of it was his records that he transferred or stuff that he copied from other people but he had all like this big chest of sony blank tapes they were all the same they were all sony and they were all much like the cars in england brown (laughs) (laughs) and that's what he had for you know the longest time and it was like a big deal if my dad pulled a record out and the only record i ever remember him specifically pulling out was goodbye yellow brick road by elton john fair enough yeah so like great like i'm pretty sure cds began production in i want to say 82 84 around there but as far as i know they didn't become common kind of like household items really for another seven to ten years so it makes sense especially right if you guys had lined up to get whatever like the newest the recently changed model was as it were Mm -hmm. um but like the iPod came out and it fuck it feels crazy to think of this but the iPod came out 2000 or 2001 yeah um, i was in high school when that came out right that's it's wild it seems like it was like so much sooner than that like it feels like there's no way we had iPods 19 years ago but we, we fucking <laughs> did sorry yeah. like i bought a couple CDs but by the time like i said where i was like 16 17 iPod the like original iPod touch was already four generations behind um and really easy to pick up so it was just way easier to keep an ipod on me than that fucking <laughs> discman but i do have the discman somewhere we ke- we kept it for whatever reason sitting in a storage tote god knows where now i never owned my own discman my dad bought one we used to go to florida and for march break my grandparents had a mobile home down there and uh my dad bought a discman in florida and that was like the families, and I basically just stole it. Um, I used to keep it on the floor beside my drum set and play drums with it. And I'd use the headphones from that hi-fi that I told you about in the Pink yeah. Floyd thing. So, <laughs> yeah, uh, realistically, I use big headphones. realistically, it might not have been my discman, right? Like knowing kind of like our financial situation and the things we had and didn't have growing up, it's mm-hmm. much more likely it was my dad's. And then he just gave it to me whenever he got probably the first iPod because where (laughs) I've always loved most, like as a kid, mostly like video game tech, my dad has always been about music. So right. His big, his big spends, his big splurges he would treat himself to were always music related. So yeah, there's a good chance that he got the iPod, gave me the Discman and I just remember it being mine. (laughs) Um, But I only remember us ever having one in the house. So (laughs) grain of salt, I guess. Yeah, um, I don't know if my brother bought one. I'm pretty sure my dad just bought it for like us to listen to in the drive to Florida. Like my brother and I used to pass it back and forth. We'd each get to listen to like a CD and then we'd have to pass it back and forth. Yeah. He then um, he later um, went and got like a small television with a VHS player in it. And we would record shows or bring movies um, at that point. That's cool. Yeah, he like built this shelf for it and everything like he was pretty he, he did quite a lot of cool like dad things yeah that's pretty <laughs> fucking handy little shit right there yeah yeah whereas like what little i honestly remember of my childhood a lot of it's just fucking traveling because right when my dad got essentially drafted into the british military i was only four so oh, like yeah. from four to 12 it was just a constant flurry of like for whatever reason the british military posts you about every year so okay. every year around March, and I only remember that because it's my birthday. So I used to always <laughs> have to essentially make the decision, like, do I want to have a party here a month or two early 
with kids I know or wait and have either a party without kids from school because I didn't know any yet or have mm-hmm. it two, three months late when I had the chance to fucking meet people. So we yeah. moved all the time, right? Like England, Cyprus, Germany, I can just on and on. So a lot of that's really all I remember. And I get violently like motion sick. So most of that is me kind of snapping in and out of grogginess because I've been drugged up on gravel to make it through whatever eight hour flight or six hour car ride we were going on. <laughs> so if we ever had any cool stuff like that for road trips, I never knew any of it. <laughs> I slept through all that. <laughs> they basically treated you like a dog that gets car sick. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> and like give them the drugs. Yep, Sleep 25 minutes before we were set to leave, I'd be given my gravel. And the gravel used to work for about four hours. So I'd wake up, you know, have 20 minutes of barely lucid where I would eat something and have a drink. Water <laughs> or Diet Coke, because <laughs> sugar used to make me like crazy hyper. Huh. Um, and then another pill of gravel and I slept till we got to wherever we were going. So <laughs> travel was the easiest shit in the world for me. I can't imagine what it was like for my mom by herself, hauling a barely comatose like six year old around. But <laughs> perhaps a, a story to to have her tell one day. Oh God! <laughs> well, I can tell you right now to make up for it. So I have um, it's called glucose intolerance, and for me, especially as a kid, what it did was when you see like movies and old TV shows about kids on sugar, that shit was me like non-stop energy so my parents essentially like my mom when we got wherever we were going if she was tired sometimes she says if she was bored she'd give me like half a can of coke and then just watch me spiral out of control for three or four hours (laughs) (laughs) and i was that was just i was the entertainment after she dealt with my sleeping ass for the last 12 hours she wired me up and watched me spin (laughs) she makes no bones about telling people (laughs) The uh, therapy bill's really racking up for you there? <laughs> no, it's good. I just don't <laughs> I need to relive my childhood drinking a nice glass of Coke. <laughs> Was, wasn't there a character from SNL or something like that? I remember like, it was like, I'm a hyperactive or hypoglycemic hyperactive. I'm a hyper hypo. Wasn't that a <laughs> Mike Myers character? Fuck, I think so. Yeah. Let's see. I'm curious now. <laughs> <laughs> May the Googling begin. Well, Stephen Googles, uh, welcome to the podcast. Uh, this week we are doing Bad Fingers album No Dice, which came out in 1970. I actually thought it was out earlier than that because I first came to know this band from the Beatles anthology where they referenced the fact that they were the first band ever signed to Apple Records. Uh, although they did have a successful career and wrote some of the, at least one of the probably greatest songs ever, they have a very, very tragic history. Two of their members committed suicide and uh, they basically were really screwed over by management and being part of the Apple label. Like when Apple was really having financial trouble, they were really the victims of that. So a very, very good band, but really, really the unfortunate product of bad circumstance. Yeah, it's a really sad ending. I knew I knew that part. I didn't know they were the first band signed by Apple, though. That's Yep. And actually, um, this band uh, they are the topic of my absolute most favorite music trivia question, especially with people who consider themselves to be like music aficionados. And that is, what was Badfinger's name when they released their first song, Maybe Tomorrow? 
And all these people that are like, I know fucking everything about music. I asked them that and none of them know. And it is the Ivies. Oh, there you go. And to this day, I'm proud that I stumped my, I'll just say father-in-law <laughs> um, with that question because he considers himself to be one of those people. I'm going to bust that shit out on my dad. He's going to yeah. make me feel like an idiot for <laughs> a goddamn 10 years. I might finally have something and I'll get him. Yeah, the Ivies. They released a single under that name called Maybe Tomorrow. They were very, very Beatlesy. They did like a music video for it. I think they're on top of a building. <laughs> it's very, very Beatlesy feel. Which, frankly, a lot of this album is too. Which is why I thought maybe I thought this album came out in like '68, '69. I didn't realize it was 1970. I didn't realize it was that late. But yeah, very tragic story. There's some behind the music and some, you know. Lots and lots of YouTube sort of documentaries and stuff about this. But long story short, two of the members committed suicide. Pete Ham and Tom Evans, right? Tom Evans, yes. Pete Ham basically gave up back uh, in the 1970s, hung himself, and uh, because of financial trouble, he was so screwed over by their management, he was broke, and then they just got dropped by the label. So he ended his life, and then Evans did... um, what 10 15 years later it was in the 80s that he killed himself yeah um, and uh i think it was it was the same kind of issues though wasn't it wasn't evans surrounded by a bunch of like shitty management and like contract disputes like he was and i think there was some f- i'm not sure if I'm, i might be confusing ham and evans I, I should probably just pull it up but um he also he also was apparently never the same after pete ham killed himself they were really really like a like a team and best friends and all that stuff and he just kind of never came back but i'm gonna just jump on his yeah i remember seeing that that like um at the end of the day like ham's suicide really really deeply affected evans yeah and i think i think he got into a dispute with molland um yeah he did Um, yeah I'm on his Wikipedia page now. It says in 1983, after a dispute with former bandmate Joey Molland over royalties for the song Without You, which we'll get into, uh, Evan hung himself in his garden. But there was uh, when I watched some of like I watched a couple of documentaries on this band, like his family and his his ex, you know, former wife, his widow, I guess she she feels that he just kind of never overcame his depression from when Pete died. Also, this is a weird tangent to just drop in here, but welcome to the show. Let's do it. Let's Um, do it. You're right. It is Mike Myers. He played Philip the Hyper Hypo. <laughs> it literally, <laughs> I, I put an SNL mic and it popped up right away. It's obviously a very <laughs> common search. The hyper Hypo. <laughs> but yeah, um, not far from the truth. <laughs> That's essentially what it is. When like, like, long story short, essentially, when I ingest sugar, instead of processing it, my body instantly converts it in, in entirety to energy. Um, so it was something I kind of grew out of as a kid and like i literally i wasn't allowed real coke without supervision until i was like 14 um Hmm. so right once i started going out and hanging out with my friends and we had kind of settled in here in edmonton and i had control of my own money and shit obviously i started drinking pop fuck all Mm -hmm. that noise um and because until about damn like two months ago now i've actually had to switch back to coke zero Hmm. so for years it didn't really affect me much it would be i drank a bottle of coke at midnight i was up till two three but i mean i was a teenager i was doing that anyways it didn't make any difference sure Sure. and then actually noticed for whatever reason this last like two three months it's almost like i've aged to the point where i've regressed back into it Hmm. but now instead of just making me hyper it makes me stupid hyper and also very sick (laughs) yeah it just like makes me feel shitty like 
like I've, oh, you're settling in nicely to being an old man right i know it's bullshit <laughs> so yeah this last like like it's six weeks now i think or so um i've been like strictly on coke zero like i'll have a bottle of coke like once a week it's almost like my starbucks coffee <laughs> Daniel. Oh, yeah. i go to tim hortons at the store and buy myself a two dollar bottle of coke and it's like christmas every fucking week so it's um, real important that you get the sugar-free monsters and rock stars then yeah right and that's why it had just by pure coincidence like at the end of the day i prefer rockstar i think their flavors are just better um and i found the sugar-free ones had much more prominent flavor than the sugary ones did um mm. and i noticed once i switched to sugar-free like energy drinks um i felt better like i wasn't as achy all the time i didn't feel like lethargic mm-hmm. i just started feeling better um so i've been drinking those for a couple of years now and yeah, yeah at this point like i can't drink <laughs> i can't drink a regular sugar line of any energy drink <laughs> puts me out of commission for like several hours damn um, yeah and now i'm at the point where goddamn coke does that too but like we ordered this (laughs) my sister found this website to order a bunch of like exotic and um international candies okay she ordered us a bunch of british shit just stuff i have no reason to eat as an adult but i can't help myself right now (laughs) and to be fair you didn't really have any reason to eat them as a kid either yeah fair (laughs) now i just you know i'm in control of my own judgments and they're all the wrong ones (laughs) i'm an adult (laughs) um yeah so apparently coca-cola and nerds of all things trigger my glucose intolerance really really bad the other Mm -hmm. night i ate like a i didn't realize it's obviously something i forgot as a kid nerds are clearly intended to be eaten by the fucking handful or like just the whole box at once yeah those little shits have no flavor if you're eating them just like a little bit at a time you kind of do them one at a time Oh, it wasn't one at a time, but it was like, you know, I'd knock a little pile into my palm and then eat it. And I was just like, man, nerds suck way more than I remember them. <laughs> and then I went to do it again. And the you know what, how nerds work. The fucking case breaks and pours half the container onto my hand. Mm. So I was like, ah, fuck it. In for a penny, right? Ate mm-hmm. that. I was like, oh, dang, these taste delicious. I was then up <laughs> till seven in the morning. Oh, my God. Because apparently nerds are essentially just pure refined sugar. <laughs> so, oh, I'm sure they are. Yeah. Yeah. I was like, I felt so bad for Danielle with two, three in the morning. Like I had to leave the room because I was just like twitchy and I was like poking at her because I had nothing else to do. And I couldn't turn the TV on <laughs> like three in the morning. I'm down on the couch, booting up a fucking video game to play for the next three, four hours till I crash. It was wild. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Fingers well. crossed. Neither John or Kane gets that because damn, I get why my mom probably did it for entertainment because <laughs> I was anything like I am now when I was, you know, seven, eight. That was been a hell of a time, but I don't want to have to go through it. You probably know if John had it by now. Yeah, I'm pretty sure we're good on John. Yeah. It's just the new one we have to watch out for. Yep. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm still completely fixated on you sitting in a chair, eating nerds one at a time like a fucking psychopath. <laughs> that would truly be <laughs> like... If I walked in on somebody just sitting silently in a chair eating a single nerd at a time, I'm getting the fuck out of that house. I'm just like tapping them out of the box and it's like, and just eating one at a time. Like a shitty old like fisherman's friend or altoid. Never once breaking eye contact. Horrifying. So the first song on this album is called I Can't Take It. 
And um, we both agree that we don't particularly like this album too much, but come hell or high water, we do have to go through it. Yeah, we should probably <laughs> and, get it. <laughs> and, and I'll be honest, it takes fucking hours to edit these, and the longer they are, the longer it takes. So, <laughs> all right, all right, sorry, all right, so I can't take it. I can't take it. I think is a is a good opening song. I think it has a really great bass line, and it really like those cool like horn flourishes through it. I really like them. Yeah, it's, I think it's, that's a neat precedent for the album. It's very very 1970s. It sounds like completely generic 70s rock but, yeah 100 but it's fun. um and that's but i think it's a good song yeah I, agree. Like, I think it's a symptom of that like iconic 70s rock is that it's it's all pretty kind of it all blends together pretty quick but it has yep. those fun little horn flares and it has those really like just sick bass riffs and guitar solos that just keep you coming back to it even mm-hmm. if on the whole it does sound like every other song i honestly straight up if somebody had just put it on in the background i couldn't geninely have told you if it was badfinger or the beatles yeah but very beatlesy 100 percent. like paul mccartney wrote some like their first hit called come and get it paul mccartney wrote that song they were produced by george harrison they were produced by mal evans of all people who's a fucking roadie for the beatles so apparently he was also a producer Damn. Which I guess it just shows you it's not what you know, it's who you know. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, I I thought it was a it was a good like upbeat track. I thought it it started the record well. And frankly, when I listen to stuff like this, I can just imagine staring at the record turning with like the Apple logo on the in the middle and just watching it go around. Just sounds like a record to me. Like there's there's albums that I hear and they just sound like CDs. This sounds like a record to me even though I'm listening to it on Spotify. (laughs) (laughs) I know, but honestly, I do. I kind of get it. Like, I don't know if I could have found the words to like say it like you did, but that's so on the nose that it sounds like you're listening to an album. And I don't know how you achieve that, but good on them for doing it. (laughs) Yeah. You know, the analog recording they were using was probably done in eight track in 1970. They wouldn't have had 24 track or anything probably better than that at Abbey Road at the time. Um, And again, they probably were recording at Abbey Road. And at one point the Beatles were talking about or tried to make their own studio and it just, I don't think it worked. They had some guy named Magic Alex try and do it and it was just terrible. That's so perfectly the Beatles. <laughs> <laughs> hey man, if, if you ever, if you want, I'll loan you the Beatles anthology. It's fucking fascinating. I have it on DVD if you still own one of those. <laughs> <laughs> I've got, I got things like complete DVDs at least. Okay. You know, if you're up, up late, having a, a crazy night of nerds, <laughs> you need something to uh, do. It's the dumbest thing I've ever admitted, but it just, I couldn't fucking believe it. And we got that on tape. <laughs> <laughs> Send it on the radio. Thank God for the internet. I'll never forget. Hey, hey. <laughs> everything, <laughs> everything lives forever on the internet. So yeah, good song. Um, I'm going to say just out of the gate, if you're one of our listeners and you're listening along with us in any shape or form, even though neither one of us kind of connected with most of this album, it is well done and it's worth listening to. I don't regret listening to this album. And I'm sure that that won't be something I can say for everything we listen to as time goes on. Oh, for sure. And honestly, I'll I'll second that. I do think it's it's at least an enjoyable album to kind of it'd be the kind of album I would throw on or I'd throw a couple songs in my playlist and let them play through. Yeah, um, it's very well made. It's clearly a powerhouse of talents in this group. It's just nowadays the sound they produced is so, I mean, part of that is, I mean, it's the Beatles. If you sound like the Beatles, you'll never hear anything else because everybody at least knows a couple tracks. Um, But yeah, it's a well-produced, it's a strong album, I think. And clearly the talent in the band was there. They just like so many rock artists in the nineties, you know, this is 70s rock and roll psychedelia, and they just 
kind of it kind of just sounds like the whole era did. <laughs> mm-hmm. but yeah, everybody go listen to it. It's good. And good. it's got some real good tracks on it that are totally worth it. Trust me. Yeah. And if you're listening to the deluxe edition on Spotify, I mean, there's 19 songs on that and you don't have to listen to all of them because some of them are demos and it's only an hour and five minutes. So if, yes. if somebody if you if you paid money for a movie that was an hour and five minutes, you'd be pretty pissed. So for <laughs> the length of an episode of Game of Thrones or something on HBO, you could listen to this album and hear some pretty interesting songs Two especially you may have probably heard before. Yeah, there's some classics on this one. Yeah, yeah, which is sort of interesting because they're sort of they're shoehorned in right there in the middle, and we'll get there. I don't want to jump there because then we're just going to talk about them forever. <laughs> yeah. Anyways, so I'm going to say I don't mind song two. Yep. Um, and I'm just going to touch on yeah what you were saying because like in this band there are um, all four of them sing and all four of them are songwriters, and so. You get a really, really cool, wide variety of vocal sound in this album. Like in, in the looking at the Wikipedia of it, like the, the way that the they sing the songs and, and like the pairings they have, it's quite a lot of Ham and Evans. But, you know, Mullen sang the drummer. What's his name? Mike Gibbons. Mike Gibbons. The drummer. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It occurred to me that we don't talk about drums much on this or we haven't yet. Oh, we're going to get to some albums I got in mind where we're going to be talking about drums. Don't you worry about that. That's coming. <laughs> well, I can't wait to listen to that Phil Collins album that you want. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So like, you know, you know, I can't take it written by Pete Ham, sung by Ham and Evans. I don't mind written by Tom Evans, Joey Mullen, sung by Evans and Mullen. The next song, Love Me Do, written by just Mullen, sung by just Mullen. Then Midnight Caller, Ham, Ham, Ham Evans, and then you get like Ham Evans and Mulland, Mulland and with Evans, Ham with Gibbons, Ham with Evans, Evans with Ham. So like, it's just it's very you know again maybe that's why you get that sort of Beatles feel to it. But it's like when we talk about you know what it means to be a band or what it you know what a band looks like when they all come under one name. And it's like it's like this. It's like Queen. They all wrote songs, and even if they didn't, you know, unnecessarily all sing very often. Like even Ringo got the odd song on like got at least one song on the album. Right. So there's a song with Ham and Gibbons. And yeah. And I so, think it goes a long way that like lyrically, like vocally, they're all very, very strong performers. Like there's no there's no song in this album that sticks out to me because there's a lack of quality, even mm-hmm. when you can tell it's a different like accompanied vocal. And like, yeah, I mean, you've got three or four extremely talented songwriters, singers I mean, Pete Ham's a goddamn legend on the guitar. Like, it's just, man, yeah. such a talented group. It, it actually did kind of surprise me how much they sounded like the Beatles. I mean, I think they're a bit more of a quote-unquote modern, right? They came... They sound kind of like what you, th- you think the Beatles would sound like if they'd continued on. Yeah, exactly. They're the almost the, like, immediate sequel to the Beatles. Yeah. Um, and that's, at the end of the day, right? I'm not a huge Beatles fan, but their contribution to music and the amount of talent is just undeniable and i kind of even just from i can't take it i felt that in this group right away i was like holy shit i get why you know they pumped out some sync like some classics yeah like these guys worked at it you can tell and fun fact the guitar that pete ham plays was given to him by george harrison it's a gibson sg and it was given to him by george harrison so again fun fact for 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 a band i haven't really listened to a lot of i kind of know a, a bunch a bit about like the story but maybe that's because i like music stories sometimes more than i actually like listening to the music yeah i get that music history is super interesting yeah 
I love all the I like I just love how they're all interwoven. And as a musician, or at least someone who used to be a musician who just owns a bunch of music equipment now, I find how like even like stuff with like guitars and how they kind of work their way through famous people really, really interesting. Like Peter Green's Les Paul that now belongs to Kirk Hammett. Yeah, that's like, cool. And I mean that's <laughs> that's an iconic story. And it's just cool yeah. that right, you make you naturally make these connections from being in the same field, and then you see yeah all these kind of connections, these ripples, these butterfly effects that kind of just carry out throughout the industry, right? Yeah, and especially back then in England, um, music equipment wasn't very easy to get, especially quality guitars, like Fender guitars, Gibson guitars. They weren't readily available. So the first, like, two Stratocasters that the Beatles ever owned, they sent Mal Evans, of all people, (laughs) out to go find them, and he bought them used. So that's wild. Yeah, like a lot of times, like these really famous instruments were bought by people because they walked into a guitar store and saw them on the wall because someone else had left it there to buy something else. They traded it in to buy something else. So and so walked into the out to the store, saw it on the wall, played it, took it home. And now, you know, the story just continues. And it's just it's crazy. Or I think it's it's something that doesn't really happen anymore because music equipment is so easy to get. Yeah, right. And that's it's sad, but good. I mean. Right. We're starting to get we're starting to get like top charting artists pumping out hits at 15, 16 years old because they have they have connections to an audience. They have the ability to take little and still create from it. But it's it's interesting and it's good to keep in mind how it used to be as opposed because right, that's where you get your your comparison for what's good or what's bad. And I don't think I don't think music quality is lessened in any way. I just think, yeah, I think it's a really good thing we have more access, but it's a bit sad that we're not going to have as many stories we used to. Yeah, there's not going to be quite the there won't be as much spider web, yeah, or like spider web of instruments making their way through the world. So onto the song, I liked, I don't mind. I thought it was like, I don't, it felt the intro felt so much slower than I can't take it that I was Mm -hmm. a little kind of thrown for a loop there. But I will say, halfway through the song, about a minute thirty, I think it is or so, where Mm -hmm like crescendos with all the instruments building up and then you get that fucking wicked drum riff right at the top of it. Mm-hmm. Oh, so good. Holy shit. <laughs> like I would listen to just those 30 seconds of this song just on repeat. It's just so well done. It's just well produced. The musicality's there. The buildup is gentle, but it doesn't interrupt the flow. Yeah. It, it like you hit halfway into the track and it immediately kind of brings your energy back up and keeps you going for the rest of it. Yeah. Oh, it's just so well done. I think I'm going to find as we go through this as a as a as an album as I'm sort of meh, but I fucking love the songs for the most part. Yeah, I'll say that. I think to me, it's a as an album, it's almost a collection of several similar songs. But each of those yeah. songs is pretty damn strong on its own. Yeah, you know, there's there isn't anything on here that, you know, um, I struggled to listen to, even though I'm glad we took such like we we took a break from recording for a couple of weeks, which gave us more time to listen to this album than we've had for any other. And I'm really glad because I really had to listen to this album a lot to connect with it at all. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, like I put on a couple songs, I'll be honest. And then I, I put off listening to the whole album because I just I knew it was going to be a grind. But <laughs> that extra time to go through and kind of give each track its own time. And then put them all together. Yeah. Both the only reason I made it start to finish. But yeah, it absolutely, it really, it really highlighted how much I enjoyed the songs. Even if I wouldn't sit there and listen to this album, right? There's, there's very few albums I would honestly sit down and just kind of listen, start to finish. And this Mm -hmm. definitely isn't one of them, but 
are 90% of these tracks going into my, you know, daily playlist? Hell yeah. Um, I really like I Don't Mind. I think, you know, we were talking um, in our last episode about how I connect with sort of slower and sadder songs. I'm a sucker for some good harmonies and just like something that kind of doesn't rush its way through. That's fair, right? And that's a, that's very much like a mood kind of thing for me. My mm-hmm. default is more punk rock, like hard, fast. But every <laughs> now and then, you just gotta... You gotta bring it down. You gotta chill. And like, I was wondering if you're gonna say punk rock. Find a way to say punk rock in this episode. Of course, every episode. <laughs> you keep that shit on your bingo cards forever. Oh, it's the free space. <laughs> yeah, it's right. punk rock. <laughs> I just sometimes you just gotta chill. You gotta listen to something a bit smoother. And that was one of the things too. I was really looking forward to doing this podcast with you. Was that I have like zero like rock and roll experience, like <laughs> 60s to like even say late 70s, like maybe even to the early 80s. That mm-hmm. whole music period's pretty much blank for me. Right. Because just the few things I had been like the Beatles I'd heard and I was like, eh, they're decent, but not the kind of shit I want to listen to. And right. I just never got around to going back. And this album was probably the first time I've sat and I'm like, God damn, this is good music. <laughs> Like, why didn't I listen to this for the last, like, 10 years? Well, if you weren't exposed to it, right? Like, if your dad was into, you know, punk rock and all that stuff like we've discussed, um, I suspect a lot of his friends were, too. And I suspect the adults in your life at the time weren't listening to this. Yeah. This is the shit the adults in my life, like, my parents are boomers. All their friends are boomers. All the (laughs) girlfriends I ever had, their parents are boomers. This is their music. When this album came out in 1970, my dad would have been 18. Yeah, see, I, I got me a young young papa he's he was minus three in 1970 so yeah so like i i haven't necessarily sought this music out it's just you know every every adult i've ever been around in my life and by say adult i mean like my parents generation this is the stuff they listen to you know all of them yeah see whereas like i just i didn't my grandparents for sure like my dad's dad listened to a lot of this but we just we weren't ever really around especially with us moving so much when i was younger obviously right the friends my dad made listen to the same stuff he did and like my dad really was into and it's probably a big part of it but my dad was a big fan of like metal rock for a long time and that's just mm. eh, i've got very little need in my life for any of it so give me I, give me an example of a band oh fuck like i know like oh slayer um Okay. I was I was thinking Black Sabbath, but I don't know. Black Sabbath doesn't really scream metal to me. They're sort of the grandfathers of metal. They they were out in the seventies and eighties too, right? Yeah, but right in the same way that like it's like Johnny Cash's grandfather country, right? Like, yeah, it might have started it, but it was a very different sound. And you can tell Black Sabbath started in the seventies because there's so much psychedelia and hardcore drug use in all of Black Sabbath. <laughs> like, no. Yeah, right? Like Iron Maiden, Slayer, Pantera. Um, okay, so like true metal. When you were like metal rock, I was like, what does he mean yeah, by that? I don't know. I didn't know if there's a fucking difference. And I was like, he doesn't mean new metal, does he? Good <laughs> lord. <laughs> no, I just, I thought, I didn't know what it was called. I have zero interest in it. But yeah, like uh, Iron Maiden, my dad had a fucking, I don't even know what he's, they're like skeleton mascot. I know it's got a name. Eddie. <laughs> Eddie, that's it. Yeah, I might have fucking posters of Eddie up for probably the time I was like six to the time I was 15 before my <laughs> mom started making him pack all his band shit away because he was a grown ass man. Um, <laughs> Not living in a dorm room forever. Yeah, so right, like Black Sabbath, I actually listened to quite a bit of Black Sabbath, but like fucking Pantera, get out of here, I'm good. 
like at some point I'm gonna have to but here's probably my favorite metal band i won't make you listen to it though (laughs) well no that'd be a good do a solo episode on my own without (laughs) (laughs) well apologies but yeah fuck that i'm good (laughs) and you'll find let's cross cowboys from hell off my list (laughs) yeah so right like i think in my mind growing up that's what rock was to me I equated rock with metal and I just never really got past that. And then like the Beatles were just psychedelia's version of rock. And it was just, it all kind of blended in my head and I was like, eh, I'm good. There's other shit out there to listen to. So I'm yeah. actually really glad we're going back and revisiting it. Cause like even Pink Floyd right away, I was like, Oh man, Pink Floyd's totally my jam. Like this is the kind of stuff I totally would listen to. Yeah. I think it's sort of, you can't see the forest for the trees sometimes with some of these bands, you know, you hear about them and you kind of get an idea in your mind of what it's going to sound like. And it's very easy to write stuff off. Yeah, right. Or you you hear one song that's just not your groove. And that's yeah. what the band becomes to you. And I think that's yeah. that's kind of what the Beatles were for me for a long time. Was whatever yeah, song I was introduced to with them. I was just like, eh, I'm good. I'll go spend my six minutes somewhere else. <laughs> and yeah, just never went back. But yeah, I really enjoyed it. And I really I actually do like I don't mind. I think it's a much stronger track than the one coming up. <laughs> well, speaking of Beatles songs, Love Me New is not a Beatles cover. <laughs> see i totally fucking man i totally would have thought like i if if i hadn't done research i 100 percent would have thought if it wasn't a cover it was a like written by paul or like i would have thought it was straight out of the beatles catalog and well, the, love me do was the first song the beatles ever released oh well there it you go. wasn't this one <laughs> it's just a i straight up thought it was going to be a cover and then i started playing and i was like pleasantly surprised i was like oh thank christ don't have to listen to them cover love me do yeah i have a weird I don't know. I have a weird kind of love hate with Love Me Do in that it's fun. It's kind of, it's jaunty. It's catchy. It's really easy to <laughs> memorize the lyrics. But also just like so generic. And it instantly was like, man, how many other bands have done this song? And you know, I couldn't uh-huh. I couldn't put their name on it, but I feel like it felt like a classic to me almost. Like I felt like I'd heard it a <laughs> hundred and fifty times before, mm. but couldn't for the life of you tell me where or by who. <laughs> it just was so it just sounded like such a generic 1970s rock and roll love song absolutely yeah you can tell like it's written by mulland and it's the only one on the track that's written by just him and there's got to be a reason for that you know pete ham and tom evans were the songwriters in this band pete ham more so than tom evans and but you know it's it fits in yeah you know it's it's fine it's it's, you're right it sounds like so much other generic 70s rock you know it's you know it's like it might as well be mustang sally yeah straight up (laughs) (laughs) but um i'll say this uh, of all the songs we've listened to and all the albums it's the first time that i uh i wrote down like that the the drums really bring a lot to this song yeah that's true and uh, i think the really raw lead guitar sound is good i think like there's good things about this song it's just put it all together as a package and it's like next yeah right i think it's just it's so hard this song in particular for whatever it was it was so hard for me to separate what i really loved about what was going on and what i was pretty over just straight up disliked it all just was smashed together and i mean at the end of the day that's kind of the product of very good production in that nothing was standing out because it's a very well-polished song. It just wasn't polished in the way I would prefer it to be. But yeah, I I agree. The drums are incredible. I think the drums are the only thing that really would keep me coming back to the song. Um, Mm -hmm. And I didn't realize it was until we had talked about it. I didn't realize it was written by Mullen. And that makes a lot of sense. It's, 
it fits very well in the album. I think it flows very well from I Don't Mind, but it mm-hmm. definitely has like a, a different feel to it. It mm-hmm. felt written by someone else. Or I sure yep. would have thought it was written by someone in the Beatles. And I think it's yep. cool that they give everybody in the band that opportunity to kind of yep. bring something to the table. But it was yeah. kind of a miss for me. Yeah, and I don't know if it's just that they were all songwriters naturally or they wanted to make sure that they all were doing it. Because there's that like fairly famous story about Queen. Like they're all songwriters. And part of the reason they did that is so that they would all get some publishing royalties. Yeah. And I mean, that's unfortunate part of having to pre-plan for the business to screw you. But smart. Which it did. <laughs> yeah, it absolutely. For both <laughs> these bands, right? Like, But yeah, like I think it's a good song. I think it's still, honestly, I, would, I don't think there's a a single track on this album that I was like, okay, turn this, sh- I'm off. Like, get it out of here, I'm done. They were all <laughs> decent songs. This one was just kind of the miss for me. Like, mm-hmm. if it came on, I don't think I'd change it, but I don't think I would. I know, I shouldn't say I don't think. I know I would never put it on myself. <laughs> like, no. I was like, I don't know why, but like Midnight Caller still sounded pretty generic to me, honestly, but it's so good. Yeah. I can't even tell you what I like about Midnight Caller. I don't typically like that it starts out so slow. I don't like that. Oh, almost like, I guess like woe is me kind of vibe mm. Midnight Color almost has. But I, I love that song. <laughs> it's good. It's just, I can't get around that. It's good. I'm completely opposite. I like Midnight Caller. I like it quite a lot for those reasons. I like that it's a quiet song. I like that it's in a minor key. I think the piano in it's great. It's an, like a really good acoustic song. That's and true. they go yeah, from, so good. you know, they're, they're doing this kind of back and forth on this album, at least on the first half of it. Because you think the first half on the LP ends with Without You. So they're going like... I can't take it's an upbeat song. I don't mind isn't. Love me do is. Midnight caller isn't. No matter what is, without you isn't. And then yeah. they flip. Yeah, yeah, I haven't really over. thought about that, but that's fucking spot on. Like, and yeah, I mean, normally that like minor key wouldn't work for me, but for some reason, midnight caller totally did. It was midnight caller is for sure going to go into the when I want to just chill and listen to like a slower, smoother kind of come down vibe almost. Mm-hmm. Midnight caller for sure is going in that playlist for me. It's a really enjoyable sound. It's a really enjoyable song. Yeah. Midnight Caller for me is like Headphones in the Dark or Driving in the Rain. It's that kind of song. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, it's not like putting this, you know, it's not, it's not, again, like I don't listen to music a lot to feel happy. I listen to music to sort of either relax or if I'm feeling kind of down, you know, I'm not one of those people, like I said in your last episode, who, that's why I struggle with pop music so much. It's so upbeat and it's all in like major key and I'm just like, nah. <laughs> just doesn't do it for me. It just doesn't connect with me on an emotional level very well. And I usually find myself feeling angry because it's like, what's fucking you so damn happy about? <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> I feel real bad when I drop a fucking pop album on you, but <laughs> whatever. You and I both know Ace of Bases, the sign is coming next month. <laughs> and I it's gonna be me that's so suggested. excited <laughs> yeah i like it um and i completely see why you struggled with it i i really like this song i think ham and evans their voices work really well together you know yeah it sounds like a beatles song again but again this song was recorded at abbey road by you know using the same piano that's on beatles records it's produced by people who produce beatles albums like the engineer on this album mal evan or producers were mal evans again the roadie 
and Jeff Emmerich. And Jeff Emmerich was involved in shitloads of Beatles albums. He was involved with Revolver, Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Band, Abbey Road. He did uh, Paul McCartney's Wings and Band on the Run, you know. And this is back in the days again. Yeah, like they weren't bringing their own piano in. They were using the one at the studio. And I don't know, I got the feeling. It's not like, that's one thing I want to kind of say pretty close up front here is that it doesn't ever feel to me like they're trying to emulate the Beatles. It doesn't feel no, so like they're trying to be the next Beatles. It just sound. It just feels like when you have the same collection of immense talent put in the same studio in roughly the same era, you're gonna get similar sounds. And I think yeah, working with the same some of the yeah. same equipment, like same mics, same recording desk, same tape, you know, same brand of tape, whatever they added up. You wrote it in those days. Some of the same producers. Yeah, I think it's just a consequence of innumerable amount of factors. And I don't think yeah. they suffer for it. It's just immediately you're going to be like, hey, these sound like the Beatles. And you'll never get away from that. You've just yeah. got to give it another try and you'll see it's so good. Yeah. But again, it's not I don't say I don't say it against them at all. Like like you pointed out, I don't say it against them as a knock. It's just that was the popular music at the time. The reason the Beatles are the most famous band of all time, the most successful band of all time is because what they were doing was really good and it was really connecting with people so if you wanted to be successful in those days you know you kind of had to go that way right why wouldn't why wouldn't you take what you could learn from one of what is still considered one of the greatest bands of all time like why wouldn't you harness that that same energy that same understanding of your audience it would be yeah ridiculous right like at the yeah, end and they day, befriended them right like they were basically the understudies of paul and george yeah right and that too like that's a that's so fucking cool man in hindsight like <laughs> I'm sure it wasn't as big an impact at the time, but at, I'm sure at the time it was still like, holy shit. <laughs> like, these motherfuckers are some of the most successful musicians ever, and they're yeah. teaching us. And that's wild to me. It's like Jeff Beck with Bones, right? Like, that blew yeah. me away. I can't even I can't even imagine. It'd be like somebody sat me in a room and was like, oh, here's Stephen King. He's going to teach you how to write for the next three, four years. Man, <laughs> brain would explode. I would not be able to handle that. There's no way. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so I think, yeah, it's important that we say sort of out of the gate, we are comparing them to the Beatles a lot, but not in a negative way. It's just, you listen to the album, and you think of like what the Beatles were doing on like um, Let It Be, I would say specifically, Abbey Road and Let It Be, which were recorded in the year before this album came out. It just kind of is what it is. Yeah, I will say where you had kind of touched on it, the piano in Midnight Caller is to die for. It's so good. Oh, it's so good. And like, honestly, it was the the one time like listening, I was like, holy shit. Like I'm pretty used to like songs that throw instruments kind of in and out of tracks, especially now that we're doing this like kind of revolving album system. Um, But that one right away, the piano got me and I was like, God, this is like Elton John level piano. Like it just, it hits you and you're like, damn, that's good. Give me more. (laughs) I think that's a big reason I really liked Midnight Caller so much is the piano. And it's just, I'm a sucker for good piano in a fucking minor key song. I think it's just like, It's, yeah, it's just part of a perfect formula for minor key songs. And they just, they did it right. Yeah, piano doesn't do a lot for me in really upbeat hard rock songs. As much as I love Elton John, I find like when he does a piano solo in like in one of his heavier songs, I'm just like, eh, just put the guitar back. <laughs> That's fair. I don't know what it is about like Elton's piano playing. Sorry, Sir Elton's piano playing. Oh my. It's just, oh, it's just, it's, it gets me. I don't know. For some, Elton John is like one of my one of those like outlier artists for me that have no business being in the rest of the music I typically listen to. But I just right. I love me some Elton John. And I'm just, oh, I love Elton John. 100%. Right? I love and, it. Love it. I love Elton John. <laughs> well, yeah. 
the guitar, the piano. Oh, it's just we can't tangent about Elton John too much, but he's good, and they did well, good. Let's let's <laughs> let's let's bookmark doing an Elton John album soon, <laughs> for sure. You can pick it if you want. I don't care. Yeah, we'll see. We'll see which week it, it lands on. But I know, I know what my favorite Elton John album is, and I bet it's not one that you would guess. Oh, probably not. <laughs> you routinely surprise me because <laughs> I mean, it's, I don't think it's going to obviously be like Captain Fantastic because most people would guess that. Is it maybe Captain Fantastic? I've only listened to once. I, I like Captain Fantastic. I don't know Elton John. I'm trying to just quickly do a little bit of trivia here because I'm curious now. I would have to say out of two that I wouldn't typically think maybe Honky Chateau or I almost want to say like Caribou or Friends, maybe. I don't know. Those are some deep cuts. Uh, it's not It's not honestly that weird. My favorite Elton John album, and it's because it's the first one I ever heard and was my dad listened to it a lot, was his live album that he recorded with the Sydney. Um, op, uh, oh, yeah. Company. Oh, so good. That is my favorite Elton John album, my favorite Elton John studio album. And it, and although we've discussed it, I have not yet listened to all of them, although I have listened to all of them up to the mid 80s. And then I've listened to a bunch of them in the 90s because Elton John is hands down my father's favorite musician, favorite artist. So when he's kind of abandoned all of his records where he had Goodbye, Yellow Brick Road, Captain Fantastic, Caribou, um, Fuck, he had so many. Yeah, he's got you know, I, yeah. too low for zero. He had all of these, like, he had tons of them. Um, but when the 90s hit and he started, like, buying them, you know, he went and bought out, you know, Made in England and Songs from the West Coast or, you know, all like, all, he has all of those. Mm-hmm. Um, so I've heard a lot of those. But yeah, that's my favorite one. It's just, it's his live album. And then my favorite um, studio album of his is Goodbye Yellow Brick Road. Yeah, I was going to say, honestly, I think that's probably my favorite studio album, too. But there is something to be said, A, about Elton John Live in general. Mm-hmm. and knows how to put on a show but the symphony orchestra is so good like the symphony so orchestra is so good yeah if i ever and i'll never get the chance but if i ever had the opportunity to just talk to elton john and ask him a question it would just be will you release the full concert from the sydney opera house because the orchestra part is the second half of the show mm-hmm. he'd already done a, an entire concert without the orchestra before that. I mean, that's insane. But yeah, absolutely. I'd pay an obscene amount of money to hear that full concert set. Yeah. Um, you can find all, like it was all recorded, all of it on video. Cause you can find, I think it was released on VHS back in the day, but you can find a lot of it on YouTube, if not all of it. So I've seen it. I've seen a lot of the performances. They exist. And it's like, dude, just fucking put them out. <laughs> right. <laughs> Like, why wouldn't you? So yeah. good. Put it out as a double album with... Ah. It annoys me. <laughs> me because it's half a product. It's fucking amazing, but it's half a product. And that makes and it so much better. talking about Elton John. And it's good. Yeah, this is... And a, it's fantastic. This will be the last point. But yeah, it's a piss off that it's half a product, and it's a damn fucking good product. Give me the rest of it. Give me the fucking rest of it, because it's already been released in some format. Yeah, right? And it's just... There's just something about listening to it as an album. It's just... Oh, so for good. completion's sake, I want to hear it anyway. <laughs> Anyways. The other thing that bugs me, I'm going to say this and then I'm going to drop it because <laughs> I just love live so much. Elton John is so like so much of his story, especially now with the movie that came out, is focused around his concert that he did at Dodger Stadium, which oh. is where the, the movie ends with him at Dodger Stadium. Yeah. And that concert has never been released. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> but it's recorded because I've seen footage from it. It's a professionally there's there's pro video of it, professional video. You know they have like a soundboard recording of it because they would have taken one. There's recordings of that album or of that show or however many he did. I don't think there was just one. I think he did a couple. Yeah, but they exist. I know there's like the like iconic one. It was like 110,000 people or something. God, it's such, yeah. such a good fucking show. I would kill to have that shit as a release. And I thought they were, I figured they would when the movie came out. It was the big crescendo at the end of the movie. He almost kills himself and blah, blah, blah. And then he goes, has this big like reveal, like big comeback at the end of it with his Dodger Stadium show. Yeah. They didn't release it. If that you go on YouTube, you can find video that they took of a documentary about that show where he's on the plane with his mom. There's footage of his parents at that show. Like, it's so documented, but it's fucking unreleased. Like, <laughs> Damn, I didn't realize Elton John was going to start such a heated conversation. Huh, I'm going to have to start doing these, these fucking episodes with a drink or something. Like. This is me <laughs> blind stinking sober and I'm getting upset. All right, let's get back to, uh, let's get back to Badfinger. Because right. <laughs> we're coming up on the first song of theirs I ever heard. No matter what? No matter what. Oh. That's the song that they have in in the Beatles anthology. They have the Ivy song technically as well, but because they're not bad, they're not bad finger yet. Um, and they sound so different in that song than they do here. Yeah, um, but yeah no matter what I've, I've listened to, I've heard no matter what, probably like, I don't know, well over a hundred times easily. I've been listening to that song since high school, heard it a bunch of times, lots and lots of times. Yeah. I love it. I love it too. I'll straight out say like, just to kind of start off fuck it's a good that's a good track man that's so good and like the way it's so seamlessly kind of like you had said where the album kind of up and downs each track no matter what so perfectly kind of ramps you back up from midnight caller i don't know Mm -hmm. it's just it's a fucking masterpiece like the production's incredible musicality is great vocals are good as soon as i heard it i knew i'd heard it before like I couldn't tell you it never had any like big impact on me. I never knew who it was for the longest time. I never would have listened to it again if we hadn't have done this album. But yeah. like whenever I heard it as a kid, it definitely stuck with me because the minute the like chorus kicked in, I was like, oh, hell mm-hmm. yeah, I know what this is. I love it. So now I'm going to never not listen to it again. It's going to be a part of my fucking daily <laughs> lead of songs. It's so good. Fucking good song. Yeah, uh, reached, it reached number five in the UK in 1971, and in the US it peaked at number eight on the Billboard Hot 100. Uh, yeah. In South Africa, it topped the charts, and... Uh, Damn. Or number... F- uh, this is about a different song they're talking about. Um, it's been in a bunch of, like, film and television, Horrible Bosses, Two, Divorce, 20th Century Boys, Will and Grace, uh, The In-Laws, Outside Providence. It's been covered a bunch of times. Um, the Clark, Shaw Blades, Def Leppard, Great White, R.E.M., Jellyfish. It's a popular song. And it's funny, I've played this at work. It's on my work playlist. And uh, I remember shortly after I started working with you guys, um, some of my coworkers from my old job, uh, my old second job, came in to visit me. And it was uh, one of my good friends, um, Nahida, who I'd worked with. And she came in, she's like, and she was like huge into like, rap and top 40 pop like aggressive pop music i guess yeah and rap and uh, she came in and this song was playing and she was like what the fuck is this song this song's crap Bryn, what are you listening to and i was just like how dare you <laughs> <laughs> you get out of my store right now <laughs> like, it's like, 
the nonsense that I've heard you singing in our at work for the last two years, and you're gonna come into my house, <laughs> fucking talk shit about this song. How dare Bad you thing? sully my doorstep? Get out! <laughs> fucking agree though. It's, oh, it's so good, and it's not. It's not my favorite song on the album. For honestly, more of a like technical like sound reason but mm-hmm. god damn is it a good song like oh it's it's number two easily <laughs> like it <laughs> would be number one but i don't know it's just it's such a good track everybody go listen to no matter what right now <laughs> don't care what you're doing go listen to it and the next one without you that's true i did of the first side i think no matter what without you are my two favorite songs from that that side i think they're just they're an incredibly strong pair of closers mm-hmm. um and I think without you mirrors the kind of energy from no matter what very well. It's not, I found sometimes the up and down was a bit jarring. Like I can't take it to, I don't mind. I did notice it kind of threw me off a little bit, mm-hmm. um, but no matter what to without you never, it didn't even occur to me. I swear I could have put this album on and I wouldn't even have really noticed. I would have just thought it was a stupid long song. <laughs> like, had you you're you're talking in a way that leads me to believe you're not familiar with without you and what that song is in popular culture um so yeah i'm not like i know it's familiar to me like i just i couldn't honestly tell you where like if that okay. makes sense no that's that's totally fair i didn't actually know that this song was written by them until way later than i should have i'm just gonna hit you with some facts from the wikipedia page on without you okay power ballad has been recorded by over 180 artists jesus the versions released as singles by harry nielsen and mariah carey became international bestsellers paul mccartney once described the ballad as the killer song of all time Hammond Evans received the British Academy's Ivor Novello Award for Best Song Musically and Lyrically. And the Ivor Novello Award are awards for songwriting and composing that have been presented annually in London by the Ivor's Academy since 1956. And over a a thousand statuettes have been awarded. Jeez. This this song is a big fucking deal. Um, I first heard Mariah Carey's version, admittedly, um, because of my dad's musical taste at the time. But the Harry Nielsen version is the one that everybody copies now. Yeah, I, it, I googled it as many of you mentioned. They, yeah, Harry Nielsen's the one I knew, and I just—I guess it never really occurred to me that it's the same song. Like, yeah, one of the one of the things I noted about their version is that compared to those other ones, this sounds like a demo. Yeah, that's a hundred percent it. It like it's got a much more like I don't know grainy or raw feel to it. Yeah. So I think I just didn't really realize. Holy shit! But yeah, like everybody's done without you, like. I know I've heard Harry Nielsen. I think I've heard the Krista Berg version. Um, I'm sure. Uh, if is there a Krista Berg version? I'm thinking there is. Because I, I'm sure. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. I'm sorry. I'm I'm still on the Wikipedia page. Singer Krista Berg, who we made without you for his 2008 covers album, Footsteps. I actually thought the first time I heard Niel- the Nielsen version without knowing who it was, I thought that was Krista Berg. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, see, as soon as you mentioned the Harry Nielsen version in my head, all the fucking little like light bulbs went off. And I was like, oh, yeah, fucking absolutely. I know this. That's why it sounded so familiar to me. But yeah. because it's got that like demo kind of raw vibe to it, I just I didn't even consider that it was a the same song and that it was the original. Yeah. Hey, holy shit. 180. That's insane, man. That's wild. <laughs> yeah. Because like I'm sure I've heard the Mariah Carey version, too, and I'm just I can't think of it. Because that's the kind it's, of stuff my mom listened to. But... It's a note-for-note note, um, cover of Harry Nielsen's version. Mm. Yeah, and see, that's probably why. Like In the same way that right away you were like, Love Me Do is a cover, but surprise, it's not. 
I think part of me was just like, oh, I fucking heard this song before. Like, where well, it's good. I think I was going to say they did the best version of it, but yeah, it's so fucking good. Yeah, I like their version. I like Harry Nielsen's version the best. And Harry Nielsen's another one that we're going to have to do on the podcast because yeah. I really like them. Yeah, I'm good with that. I'm not a huge, like, not in the way that I am like Elton John, but I'm a, I'm a pretty big fan of Nielsen. Yeah, it's good. I kind of liked that it had that demo-y almost vibe to it. But I, I don't know. It's just, it's so hard to come up with new things to say because at the end of the day, right, this is just another track produced by incredible talent with really strong production. Yeah. And it's just like, lyrics are great oh man it's so good <laughs> and now <laughs> I, like, I feel like such an idiot in hindsight being like oh i don't know this song and the minute you said harry Nielsen, i was like oh fuck definitely like i've heard this song 106 <laughs> times like <laughs> i just don't know if i've ever heard the bad finger version of it i i admit when i went back and listened to theirs it really it really spoke to the kind of musician that harry nielsen is that he took this very stripped down thing that sounds almost like a demo and turn it into the song that he made it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, Nielsen's just so talented. <laughs> oh my God. That's, we can't do another Elton John tangent, but if, if you haven't go listen to Nielsen, it's so good. He's just goddamn, He's so talented. Do yourself a favor. Listen to Nielsen Schmielsen and watch the Harry Nielsen. Everybody's talking about him documentary and just like get an appreciation for this man. Uh, fun Elton John fact, uh, the string and horn arrangements on H- Nielsen's version are by Paul Buckmaster, who worked a lot with Elton John back in the day. Ooh, that's cool. Fun. I like it. <laughs> <laughs> that's truly fun trivia. It's nice to get that every now and then. Yeah. Yeah. So um, let's not dive into Harry Nielsen too much, because, again, I love I love me some Nielsen. It's fun how I like how this album has ta- made us start talking about other like 70s yeah. artists that we really like. <laughs> <laughs> so for those of you listening, starting in October, we're, we're going to be introducing a new segment. Um, we've alluded to it in the last couple of episodes. It's the songbird of the album. Songs that are not necessarily bad, but songs that kind of completely derail the flow of an album. And although they probably didn't realize it at the time because they placed it on like the first song of side two, when you listen to it as a complete package with no gap, it completely derails your listening experience. So we're going to start talking about what the songbird was for us on the album, and you'll be able to find our songbird playlists (laughs) in Spotify, same (laughs) as our top two songs from the albums we're reviewing. And... You know what? We're going to start doing it officially next month, but Bloodwin is the songbird on this album for me. Oh, absolutely. Man, 100% agree. And I, <laughs> I really, really like Bloodwin. I think it's a very striking song. And I think, I mean, that's a big part of why it's the songbird. It's, it's <laughs> so different. And it's Bloodwin to me felt, I'm trying to think of the way to explain it, but it almost felt the most original out of the all the tracks. Like, it just has such a distinctly different sound and kind of energy to it mm-hmm. that to me, it, it truly felt like that was the one song where they're like, Hey, we've got this idea. We know it's not going to sound like what we're used to, but let's do it. And they fucking, they nailed it. It's a good song, but damn yeah. is that. Yeah. Like you said, without that gap where you don't have to physically flip the side. Yeah. Oh man. Is that a, that's a wake up call. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't I don't honestly remember if we were recording yet at the time, so I'll just say it again. It's the closest thing we've come to a country song at this point. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> oh, 
Oh, and it's and it's good. I mean, it's it's got that like yeah, folksy country. Um, I couldn't honestly tell you if the story they sing about in Bloodwind is true. It doesn't sound familiar to me. But I mean, at the end of the day, it's just a song about a, a gallon of dude just running away and having a good yeah. time. Like, I, I had to Google if Bloodwind was even technically a name, and it is. <laughs> and as someone who's <laughs> whose name is Welsh. I felt kind of embarrassed that I didn't know that, but uh... you know what? The only reason I knew it is because man, year four, I think year three, maybe. Um, So Americanized translation grade three or four. Um, One of my best friends in the world, her name was Bronwyn. And yeah, that's the exact same thing. It's just a very old, very Welsh name. Um, So like when I saw the title um, Bloodwyn, I was like, Oh, at first second, I was like, that's a weird name. I was like, oh, fuck. I knew someone who had a very similar name. Like, I'm pretty sure this is just the name of somebody they knew. <laughs> <laughs> Probably. Um, fun. I went to school with a Bronwyn as well. Oh, really? Yeah, she was a year ahead of me. Um, and her, I don't know what her family's heritage was, because she had an older brother named Emerson, I think, hmm. which to me is a last name, but anyway, um, but yeah, they, uh, she was the daughter of the Anglican minister at the Anglican church in town, which I actually didn't know until like high school. Oh, wild. Yeah. But yeah, I actually knew a Bronwyn as well. Only ever known one. Yeah. Same here. But, uh, <laughs> yeah. But Bronwyn Davis, you know, what's yeah. bullshit about the Bronwyn I knew we were in the same year until I fucking moved back here because goddamn European schools end earlier. Um, because they deal with they've just got a fast-tracked education system in england um Mm -hmm. it's like essentially we moved back and i technically ended up a grade under bronwyn when i was graduating high school bronwyn was already actually starting to go into college because she had finished high school the year before and every now and then she reaches out on like facebook or whatever just to remind me that we may have been in the same class but technically (laughs) she's a year ahead of me (laughs) That's awesome. I was not friends with Bronwyn. <laughs> that's a shame. <laughs> I don't. I don't know that to be true. Mind you, Bronwyn may have yeah. been a terrible. I don't. That's she's fair. Probably, she's probably um, lovely. To be what, fair, her family was lovely, lovely, from what I know. So that's good. I was gonna say because if my Bronwyn had been the daughter of a local minister, I probably wouldn't have been friends. Just probably wouldn't have gone on that great. <laughs> <laughs> we just weren't friends because she was a year older than me, and in those days, and you know, elementary school, that really matters. Oh, absolutely. Like even in high school, that shit was still a big deal. Yeah, dumbest shit looking back at it, but yeah, that's how. Well, it matters, and I I think it's you know it's those sort of social things that matter, which is sort of like why people look at you know when when like twenty one year old dudes date like seventeen year old girls, it's like fuck's wrong with you. Yeah, but you know if you're like thirty five and you're married to someone who's you know thirty. No one bats an eye about it. It's just those little age differences mean a lot at that time. Yeah, I mean, when you're when you're building a social structure and I mean, we're going to start deep diving into psychology soon. If I don't talk. <laughs> right. When you're building a social structure and finding kind of your place in that world. Yeah, that was like those little deviating differences are what decide and determine all of our social constructs through elementary through high school. Right. Yeah. So Yeah. It's funny to think. At the time, it was a wildly big deal that there was a year difference between the two of you. But mm-hmm. right once once you hit say twenty four, twenty five, none of that shit matters anymore. None of that shit matters. No, not at all. Look at us. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, but it matters. You know, you look at like you know, you look at my son Liam, and you think of like 
Jordan that we work with. There's really only three years difference between them, yeah. but their maturity level and like what they're doing with their life at this point is, is wildly different. Yeah. And I think that's, that's a big part of just like your teen years and stuff, right? Like a single yeah. year, once you're an adult, a single year means jack shit. But as a kid, a year makes a big difference. Like there's just a huge amount of physical and, you know, psychological changes you go under every year growing up. So that whole idea of it's like, you know, when I, you know, a year to me now is only a 36th of my life. But for my daughter, it's a fifth of her life. Right. Oh, man. When you put it that way, it's wild. (laughs) (laughs) Which is where that whole like time goes faster as you get older thing. And it's like. It doesn't go any faster. It's just a year means that much less in terms of your overall life experience. Yeah, fair enough. It's a good way to put Which it. Which is why immortality would suck. Oh, fuck yeah, man. No, no thanks. <laughs> Conversation for another day. We can't do that when Blind's thinking sober, but the concept of immortality <laughs> would be just terrible. Horrifying. Can you imagine being like 10,000 years old? Oh, shit. You could have like a 50 year long marriage with someone, but the the 50 year marriage compared to your 10,000 year, like it'd be like having a one night stand for you and I, it'd be like nothing. Yeah. It'd be like most of that person's life and it'd be nothing to you. It's like genuinely Fuck. almost like a fear of mine. <laughs> like <laughs> fear is obviously not the right word in that. I'm obviously rational enough to know that ain't ever going to fucking happen. But man, if it did, especially if it was outside of my control, fuck all that noise. No, thank you. <laughs> yeah. A couple of jobs ago, I, uh, we ended up at uh, the boss's house for like a fire and everybody was shit faced. It was like two in the morning and I started talking about immortality and it just triggered me and not in like, you know, I'm triggered, but it was just like, okay, you want to get into real immortality? Like you're incapable of dying. <laughs> like, right? like you're going to outlive the universe. Cause no, thank you. They were like, well, what do you mean? I'm like, you're talking immortality and like the scale of like, you know, hundreds of years. You're talking maybe Highlander, Ugh. true immortality. The in- in the inability to die i was like at some point the sun is going to envelop our planet and it's going to be destroyed and the force of that destruction will cast you out into space yeah oh my god (laughs) and you're too small and you know you're either going to be caught in the orbit of another planet depending on if you happen to cross one close enough at which point you'll be then be stuck in orbit until the sun grows big enough to blow that planet up. <laughs> at which point you'll be cast into space again. And at some point, the universe will stop in, you know, a trillion years or whatever. And it's like, you're still alive. So what happens to you then? Right. They're just like, you need to stop talking. <laughs> yeah, man. Oh, an existential crisis. <laughs> but i agree immortality would suck <laughs> <laughs> yeah um but blood wins the songbird of the album <laughs> and, and i hope you got something for the next song better days because literally my notes are got nothing <laughs> oh shit <laughs> that's not good <laughs> anyways we're great at segues um i also don't have notes for better days because it's just it is it's not bad I mean, I don't even really, I can't even like play it back in my head right now. Like, I think Better Days might be like the weakest song on this album for me. Okay, so um, let's just follow back on this and then we'll move on. Better Days was written by Evans and Mulland, sung by Mulland and Evans. Uh, It's four minutes dead. It has guitar in it. Yeah, Um, really. (laughs) And it has drums, it has bass, and it's completely unmemorable. Yeah. I literally have it on and I, I couldn't even like hum it. And I've listened to this album a lot. 
yeah it's got like it's got a little bit of a like a bluesy almost like a preemptive almost like funk vibe to it but it just doesn't do anything with that it's just utterly forgettable and i don't think it would be if it wasn't on a track like on an album that's just filled with dynamite tracks Mm -hmm. i think better days was one of those songs that listening to it separately i was like yeah whatever i get it I i can get down to this like it's fine um i've certainly heard far worse songs (laughs) <laughs> um, but I've even in this collection of tracks heard much better songs. Yeah. And I think every, like, I think we've talked about it pretty much every episode, but every album's going to have a song like that. It was yeah. better days, hands down. <laughs> like, I wasn't as big a fan of side two as I was side one, just kind of in general. Likewise. Um, yeah. I just thought it was a much, it was a much less strong closer as it was an opener for this album, but better yeah. days is just, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's I, i'm sure it, it happened with a lot of lps because you even look at some, you know beatles stuff like the back half of the album in some cases especially on some of the earlier albums the songs are very forgettable they put all their strong stuff up front because they know that there's a pretty good chance that people aren't going to bother flipping the record yeah i mean that makes sense i didn't really consider it that way but that's so true like personally there's a good chance that i would get a track or two into the second side and then flip it back and listen to the first side like yeah it's just eh, i don't know it's a it's still obviously right it's a polished song it's being performed by very talented people but it is just even even given that their sound itself is kind of at this point now kind of like a generic 70s sound Mm -hmm. that (laughs) better days is just oh it's it's so mediocre that it's really hard to find words to talk about it like yeah so let's not yeah I was so hoping to get some shit to say because I was like, literally, I didn't even put better days in my notes. It's just a blank spot. I just don't have anything for it. I, I put down every song that's on an album that we do, and then I put my notes beside it in a notepad or whatever, and I always have a, like one or two sentences. This one, literally two words. Got nothing. Yeah, I mean, it's so. just a worker man's ditty. Eh, take it or leave it. It's fine. It. <laughs> it's fine. Yeah. Uh, it had to be coming up next. I've got, you know, I thought it was like, it's very singer songwritery vibe, but, uh, it, if you put it on in headphones, it's got a really, really, really nice, like jangly 12 string acoustic guitar buried like down there. Mm-hmm. And it's, uh, it kind of reminds me of almost of like an early Eagles song almost. Ooh, that's a very good comparison. Yeah. I was going to say it had to be for me is like a kind of headphone exclusive track. Because, yeah, there's just there is a level of like depth and intricacy to it that you only get on headphones. And otherwise, it is almost like Better Days kind of a it's a pretty generic song. Like it's decent. Um, I think the lyrics are nice, but they're nothing astounding. Like vocals are good. But yeah, that like I didn't know how to describe but that guitar is very, very good. I have my like draft notes and then my finalized <laughs> notes. Oh my goodness. You've got draft and good book. <laughs> my parents used to talk about having um. to do draft and good book. <laughs> for me, uh, like I really like the 12 string. I'm a sucker for a 12 string acoustic guitar. I really am. As one that's used well. And I think this one's really used well. It really drives the song along. It, it's the bedrock of the whole song. And um, it's not very prominent, but that's kind of the best part about it. But yeah, it, it reminds me of something like Glenn Fry, the Eagles would sing. Mm-hmm. Something yeah. a little more country, a little more toned down. I think it's kind of a dark horse of the of the album, if I'm honest. It's sort of like it's not one that I would probably put on, but if I caught it, 
again on headphones listening to the music to just like the activity i was doing was listening to this record or listening to music and this came on i'd be really happy about that that was one thing i was really worried about with doing this like 1970s rock is that like I don't have a lot of depth for comparisons or similar kind of sounds or experiences, but a hundred percent, I could see this, this track being on Negan's album. Like, um, and yeah, you're right. That acoustic guitar was such a really great, pleasant surprise when I was doing my final listen through on headphones. Mm-hmm. And it's just, it's nice. It's just nice to hear good acoustic guitar. I don't know what the difference between the string count is, but it's a damn good guitar. <laughs> I really like it in this track. Um, yeah, the way it the way it works on the guitar, um, other than the obvious, it has twice the strings. Is um, the strings for the bottom four are an octave higher? So the low E, it's the regular E that you get on a six string, and then an octave higher. So a low E and a high E. Oh, okay. Same A, regular A and a, that you get on a six string, and then an octave higher. D, G, the same. And then the B string and the high E string are two strings tuned the same. So you get two of the same B note and two of the same high E note. Oh, okay. And that's how they're tuned. That's how they're tuned traditionally. Obviously, you can tune a guitar in any number of different ways, but that's how it's tuned traditionally. Cool. I'm glad I learned that. <laughs> yeah, I just agree. <laughs> the guitar is really strong. I think it fits the song very well. I will say, I think it's a good thing. It's only like two and a half minutes long. Mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure, yeah, that's yeah the shortest track on the album. Um, and I, it just yeah. feels like one of those fun, Hey, we have a spot to fill. Here's this song we like. Mm-hmm. And this is the one, I believe you said this is the one that was written by Gibbons, right? The, uh, the drum player. Yeah. Ham and Gibbons. Yeah. So we're, same or thing. no. Oh. Yeah. It had to be right. We're talking about it had to be. Yeah. Yeah. Cause better days we had nothing. Yeah. Ham and Gibbons wrote that song and sang it. <laughs> I like that each person got their, their opportunity to do one of their tracks and mm-hmm. those sounds don't necessarily always line up, but I think due to how strongly this album's produced, they never feel yeah. out of place either. And part of that is just their talent. No matter what song mm-hmm. I think this group performs, you're going to get a good performance out of them. Um, mm-hmm. And yeah, I just thought it was cool. Like it was a, it was a break um, coming in kind of right in the middle of side two. It was, it was just kind of a nice little reprieve after better days, something that, still wasn't shockingly amazing but had that nice fun kind of difference to it almost like love me do did um yeah i don't know it's just it was a solid call i think it's i think it's well placed i think the sound still delivers what you're it doesn't deviate so far out of what you're expecting um from this band and from this album but Mm -hmm. it, it shakes things up a little bit and it's nice and that was it's one of those things that kind of kept me going through the album you know (laughs) hitting minute 35 38 like just being like oh my god like we're getting there (laughs) but um yeah it was just nice to have something that kind of changed things up yeah yeah it um i didn't even kind of realize until you kind of pointed it out that yeah it was written by mike gibbons the only one that's only him very cool Watford John, um, what'd you have for that? I've been jumping on my notes first, so you you jump on this one if you want. Um, actually, Watford John, I think is, I've been re-listening and talking about. It. I've been like waffling on what my favorite track is, but first listen and even kind of like final re-listen, Watford John is my favorite song on this track or off this album. Hmm. Sorry, I it's hard to kind of explain. I I love how it kicks in with that fun up tempo piano ditty. 
I just, I love the energy. I love, man, <laughs> I, I wish I had more, like, specific notes like you do. I just, I love that it builds. I love that it's high tempo. It's so high energy. And it was a really cool, like, it had to be, like you said, had that singer-songwriter vibe, kind of relaxed, a little bit higher tempo, but, like, pretty middling. And then Watford John comes in and you're, like, you're back in the action. Like, upbeat, yep. quick, fun. Like I said, I love the piano work in it. Uh, I think there was a line in it that I really liked, too. There's um, it's the only song written by all of them on the album. Ooh, that's really um, and it's got a really cool organ going on in it. That's what it is. I literally wrote, "What instrument is it?" Re-listen? Question mark. <laughs> <laughs> that's what it is. The organ's fun. Like it's just, yeah. It's almost that's like a lot. it's almost like bicycle. Like okay, maybe it's wild and out there, but it's also just fun and upbeat, and it's really easy to love. And I think yeah. for John would be for me like the kind of song that I would just keep coming back to, like. I'm scrolling through my playlist and I just don't know what I want to listen to. I'm going to pop this on until I figure it out. Right. Like it is a good song to throw on when you don't, when you wouldn't know what else to feel. It's like, I don't want to feel like bummed, but it's like, I don't know what I want to go like this. This could lead into a lot of different things. Playlist wise, hundred percent. Yeah. Right. It's not, it's not like this crazy high energy, like party song, but it's not a minor key slow song. It's, (laughs) it's a good, just staging song. Um, and I think it's, it's placing the album is perfect. Yeah. Oh, it just, I don't know. It won me over. But also like this the line, I don't want a Cinderella. I just want my teddy bear for some reason. It's just really cute. <laughs> I get the, the song. It's actually quite explicit. But that line just, Oh, hundred percent. It's just super cute. I just kind of loved it. And I just, yeah, <laughs> my yeah, notes, like <laughs> my notes were lyrically. It's the 1970s version of Hey Ya. <laughs> Fuck. <laughs> Bravo. Holy shit. That's so good. You're so right. I don't want to meet your mama. <laughs> this is just about like, this yeah. is a booty call. Song. Oh, absolutely. Right after the line I love is I don't want to backstage Bella. I just want to take you there. Like, yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I just like, I heard, I just want my teddy bear. And I literally like you and my stupid single nerd fucking eating preference. I pictured this grown ass man being like, nah, get the fuck out. I'm done. I just want to lay in bed with my teddy bear. I just want to relax. <laughs> <laughs> and that's not yes. the song at all, but I don't know. I just loved it. I loved the energy. I loved the organ. The organ's so fun. You like, man. I don't ever hear organs in the songs I listen to. Yeah, and yeah, I it just, reminds me I of uh, like the riff in it reminds me of John Lee Hooker's "Boom Boom Boom Boom." Hmm. Um, and if you don't know that song by name, did you ever see Blues Brothers? Yeah, I know the song. And actually, okay. I do know it from Blues Brothers. <laughs> okay, awesome. <laughs> like, it reminds me of that. Just, yeah. just like, just, I don't know. I don't know why. This obviously not really musically very similar. Like, it's different notes. It's very much not a ripoff of that song or even really inspired by it. But but it totally it has that same it. feeling. right? And actually, like, that opening kind of piano riff very yeah. much sounds like that. And it's yeah. just, yeah, it just opens you up into this. Like, okay, okay, it's going to be a quick, upbeat, fun, like, just enjoy yourself kind of song. Yeah. And I think part of that was, right, for me, like I had said, like, getting all the way through it was kind of a grind for me. And I think right at that end when I was like, man, am I really going to make it through the last, like, 10 minutes? Mm. This song really struck me. I was like, oh, shit, they know what they're doing. I'm to- I'm totally in now. Like, I'm <laughs> 100% recommitted. And kind of like I had said when we were talking about, like, um, no matter what and without you mm. what for John isn't my favorite song because it's, it don't, I don't think it's the best representation of the band. I don't think it's the most technically impressive. 
I don't think like uh, musically speaking, it's the strongest. It's just lovable. And it just, that's the song that just connected with me off this album. Just right away. I was like, oh man, totally in. I'm ready to have a good time. See what else is coming up. <laughs> Watford John for me, like in terms of like what it would mean for a band, like a touring band, I could see them opening like their encore section with it. Yeah, no, that would that would make sense. Like, I don't know, just because it's fun and it's. Yeah, right. And that same kind of vibe that I got listening to the album, that's the kind of song that if they've kind of finished out their set and they're coming back mm-hmm. and they need to get the crowd invested in the next couple, like two, three songs they're going to play for their encore. That's such yeah. a good song to get that energy back up without being like, all right, y'all need to be at 11 right now. Yeah, exactly. The next one, Believe Me, I really like it, but I really just hear it as it just really, really reminds me of Oh Darling by the Beatles off Abbey Road. And I don't know if you know that song. I don't know the song in particular, but this was the for sure. I get it like this. This was the song that to me was like, oh, this is a Beatles love song. <laughs> like, <laughs> I would encourage you if you have music on now and you're playing it and you're listening to this song a little bit, throw oh darling on real quick and uh compare them because i think musically they're very they sound very similar again i don't think that it was intended to be a an intentional copy and it's just the way i hear it okay so i just did what you suggested i do know the song oh darling i did not know it was the beatles to be honest (laughs) but i know i've heard it like it's it's gotta have been in a movie or background always at some point right but oh 100 like 10 seconds into that song right i was like okay yeah (laughs) <laughs> that's this is the song i thought it was the way they play it reminds me much more of what i envision in my head as the beatles i never right. i never really think of the beatles for their love songs or their like slower minor key songs mm-hmm. but yeah fucking right away like holy shit yeah and again yeah i don't think it's intentional i don't think they're i don't think they're essentially ri- like ripping off the beatles to make sales i think they're no i don't think so either. businessmen like they're just intelligent and they know who their audience is and they know the sound they can produce well. And when you write a love song, sometimes it's going to sound like other people's love songs. Yeah. And I don't think they sing it very like similarly. I think structurally the songs are similar and I think, you know, musically they sound similar, but you know, the way Paul McCartney sings, Oh, darling, he's like screaming it. Yeah. You guys are definitely singing the song like Evans and Hammer singing. Believe me, they're not, they're not going to the place that Paul McCartney went to of that. Like, raw intensity that he sometimes got to in his songs yeah um they weren't trying to get there and i think just structurally it sounds similar i think that's that's a good way to kind of break down how they're similar to the beatles is that i think structurally they're very very similar but i think vocally and like this is really my only exposure to bad finger at the moment but i think even like lyrically speaking they differ from the beatles quite a bit yeah and i think it's almost like I think I've, I know I've used this comparison before, but I can't think of another one. Um, the difference between like Nine Inch Nails is hurt, the original and Johnny Cash is hurt. I think yeah. because they come from so distinctly different places and they mm-hmm. the bands recorded them with like a different message and a different feeling in mind. They feel yeah. like very distinct songs. Yeah. Um, so I agree that Believe Me structurally sounds very much like Oh Darling. Now that I've got it playing in the background, um, I actually prefer like this one. Like I prefer that it's not that 
it's not like a power ballad love song. It's yeah. just like a nice, smooth rock and roll love song. Um, and Oh Darling is definitely not one of my favorite Beatles songs either. I'll agree with that. But um, this is my only exposure to Badfinger as well. I'd be interested at some point way down the road revisiting Badfinger and listening to like the Badfinger album or the Wish You Were Here album, which apparently they have a Wish You Were Here album. Because uh, those are both from 1974, so they're before Pete Ham died, and but they're you know five years away from the end of the Beatles, and it'd be interesting to see where they went by like the end of the career of them with Pete Ham. Because I, for me, Pete Ham was like he's the primary songwriter. You know, he sings most of the songs. He certainly sings most of the songs that I like, and he's sort of the soul of the band for me. I would imagine whatever they were after he was gone was significantly less and they didn't release another album until 1979 after he died and then the one that they um then that was it they didn't release another song album after 1979 the only other one they released is a live album which i wouldn't mind listening to yeah um yeah i agree right like you said um not only did ham write and sing most of these tracks he was also lead guitarist and as we've kind of touched on a couple times the guitar and like to be fair, all the instruments really, really well like serve their purpose well. Um, mm-hmm. Clearly, they all knew what they were doing. But so many times when you're listening to this, you stop mm-hmm. and think like, "Oh man, look like listen to that guitar! Like how perfectly it complements the melody, how perfectly it complements the flow." Yeah. His his skill on guitar is just 100 percent undeniable, and I can't imagine that they just replaced that. And somehow no. created the same sound. There's just no way. Yeah. And when you think um, when they were the Ivies, Evans and Molland were actually on different instruments. In those days, Evans was playing rhythm guitar and Molland was playing bass and they switched mm. when they became Badfinger. And Ham stayed on guitar. And I think in those days, Evans was sort of like their lead singer. He was sort of prettier than the other guys. And I think they were and he had sort of that nicer, high, higher register voice. And then when they became Badfinger and Ham kind of really became the driving force behind the band and kind of their lead singer, they developed that harder sound, which matched with the songs he was writing and the way he sang. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's he's an incredible musician or was an incredible musician and an incredible guitar player and an incredible songwriter. I think the fact that I think, you know, he's kind of been lost to history in a lot of ways, buried amongst, you know, the, the sea of tragedy that happened in those days in the music industry and just kind of the the whitewash of 1970s kind of rock. A lot of it's just kind of like the way we have been or were thinking about this album before we even got to it. It's like, and it's generic. We keep saying this generic 70s rock, generic 70s rock. I think it's a shame that he's been kind of forgotten in a lot of ways. Yeah, absolutely. Like I wouldn't, I don't, the only reason I kind of know Pete Ham is I know I've heard my dad talk about him before, even though this wasn't the kind of thing my dad would talk about, right? Him being essentially quote unquote, a music nerd and him having such an interest in like metal guitar was a huge part of it, right? Like I think my dad's owned probably six guitars in the time I like can think, like remember just from losing them in moves or getting them damaged. He's just always had to make sure he's had a guitar. Hmm. So these like, he used to do like music trivia nights and stuff with us where we would just sit down and he would just like bombard us with these wild music trivia questions. And I know P ham was one of the few like guitarists that he really really liked i just never really know who pete ham was like what band he was in or what he did um and i'll say right away like i get it (laughs) i totally get it now um i get that yeah it's it's a tragedy that 
not only was there clearly so much more Ham could have done and like could have the life he could have had, but also mm-hmm. as like a fan, as a audience member, the kind of sounds Ham would have produced had he, you know, stayed alive, had he not taken his life yeah. is a, it'll probably forever be one of those. What ifs for me now is like, mm-hmm. like what would have happened? What, what would have happened if, you know, Ham and Evans had been able to kind of overcome that overwhelming pressure they were feeling if they could have, you know, gotten help and pushed through or whatever their, you know, personal circumstances were. It's a tragedy yeah, to they... think we lost two extremely talented people in the span of like 10 years who could have revolutionized music and the sound of rock. Like, it's crazy to think, yeah. but like, rock might be a completely different sound now if Badfinger had survived into mm-hmm. like the 80s. Like, what kind of sound would they have been producing, you know, 85, 86? Yeah. I want to believe probably very much like the cars. Hmm. Yeah, no, I could, that makes sense to me for sure. But yeah, you know, if they'd had proper management, if they had their finances looked after properly, if they weren't embroiled in the, you know, the fucking dissolvement of Apple Records when it went bust, and what could they have been if they were just, you know, another EMI band with, you know, a fairly reasonable and not crooked manager? Right. Those two guys would probably still be alive. They may not still be alive now. It's hard. It's impossible to know this many years later, you know sickness cancer accidents any number of things can take somebody's life but they would have survived past when they did yeah right and even four or five years can make a world of difference in you know what you're what you bring to the world and what you're able to share with people so and since we're on a downward uh note we're gonna jump to we're here for the dark the last album on our last song on the album which is my favorite i like we're for the dark um i think it's a very, very good closing track. I think it's the kind of perfect way to close out the album. Yep. Um, right. It didn't speak to me kind of as well as say Watt for John or um, without you did, but I really like it's got for me, it had a very like almost like bluesy feel to it. Mm-hmm. And I mean, that obviously kind of goes without saying all rock kind of has blues in it just by mm-hmm. nature of what rock is but I felt it much more prevalently in we're for the dark. And I really, really like that. I mean, I can't really think of how else to put it into words, but I, I love when you're doing a slower kind of closeout track, bringing in that blues to kind of carry through. Um, and even the parts of the song where they're like, aren't really any vocals. Like nobody's got a solo, but it's just instrument or just, mm-hmm. they're really good. <laughs> you can't get kind of just ham. Really yeah. Like, I didn't, this literally, I connected with it because one night I was listening to this album on headphones and I went to bed with this, this still in my ears. And I literally laid in bed, kind of drifting to sleep. And this song came on because I was just trying to get through the album one more time, trying to find a way to connect with it. This song came on as I was lying in bed in the dark by myself, you know, missing my ex, <laughs> missing my kid's mom, because nothing reminds me of being alone more than like going to bed at night by yourself. Well, yeah, for sure. And, and this, you know, in the same room that we shared. Um, and this song came on and and it just hit me 
in the right way. And it instantly completely overshadowed No Matter What as my favorite song in the album, which until that day had been. Um, And yeah, I agree with you. It completely, it bookends the album perfectly. When you start with, I can't take it as this really raunchy sound, upbeat, they're all, you know, Ham and Evans doing harmony, lots going on, really, you know, trying to jump into the album kind of, so, so to speak. And to end here with, you know, Ham with an acoustic guitar backed by strings and brass and a ukulele and just singing a song that you could imagine him doing if he ever did like a solo show with just him and acoustic guitar, just kind of Neil Young style. Mm-hmm. It's just, I don't know, it just, for some reason, this really stripped down little song. For me, it's where I really connected with Ham as a songwriter and with, you know, what he was doing lyrically. And then the fact that he somehow managed to get these like big brass parts into it and still have it as this like quiet, intimate song. It was just, you know, I don't know how much of that was him and how much or how much of that was, you know, the producers and stuff, but I don't know. It's just, it's fantastic. Yeah. It's, it's so great. Like it, it muse like mixes instruments in a way that inherently seems contradictory. Like your like example of the big brass is so perfect in that, you would never think to hear it when the song starts and you wouldn't think that it would work, but it just does. It's so, it's so meticulously well-crafted that it just like everything from Ham's vocals to, you know, like the ukulele makes no sense, but it's just, it works. It was clearly, you can tell where for the dark was the product of a team of people who truly understood how music works and how you can, you can do things that are unexpected or out of the ordinary and not have it be detrimental as long as you know how to do it. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I think it's a perfect bookend. It's so good. I love I love the way stereo is used. For me, Where for the Dark's another really, really fantastic headphone track. Yep. Um, yeah, where you'll get those soft kind of slow riffs that, you know, come in off your, la- your left. And then you hear the vocals kind of kick in. And then, you know, a secondary music track will kick in on the right. It just, it blends stereo so perfectly. Um, yeah. In the way that, like... I loved Interstellar Overdrive because it really played with that concept of what can you achieve mixing those tracks up. Um, I found Where for the Dark was like that same concept, but with refined um, execution. And it's just, it's so good. It's like, it's not like the strongest track for me, but it's so good. And realistically, like side two of this album for me only is really worth it for Watford John and Where for the Dark. The rest yep. of them is good. It's a strong second half in this, like mm-hmm. not as strong as the first, obviously, but like without Watt for John, I don't even know if I would have made it to the end. And then like, we're for the dark. Damn. That's so good. In the same way, like you said, I can't take it is a perfect intro into the sound yep. you're going to be hearing. We're for the dark is such a good, like outro. It's yep. the, like, it feels like the, the natural conclusion of the journey you've been on musically yep. up to that point. Yeah. And uh, when you look at it, like, I think it's a, it's, a, it's a missed song because I'm, you know, if you look at the plays on even to Spotify, no matter what, as an example, the big song that everybody knows, 15 million plays without you, 15 or what is it? Uh, 2 million plays. They're all, they're all listening to the Mariah Carey version. <laughs> <laughs> um, Bloodwin, like 200,000, believe me has 2 million listens. And right after, We're For The Dark, in my opinion, the best song on the album, has 560,000. Damn. Yeah. <laughs> That's a sharp decline. And yeah, it's a... I'd never heard of it. Like, obviously, I didn't have a whole lot of background with Bad Finger at all, but 
never heard of it. I've never heard anybody mention it. I've never even heard it in passing. And yeah, I agree. It's a shame. It's a it's a damn good track. Like it's it's just one of those things where you can tell they knew what they were doing, and you could tell it was personal. It was relevant. You could tell Ham. You could tell it's a product of Ham with the help of other very talented people. And I think yeah. it's it's a great way to capstone that feeling of natural talent and strength that the, they have as a band. Yeah. And I love Ham's vocals. And I think Word for the Dark is the best track you get his vocals on. It's just, yeah, it's good. <laughs> 100% I agree. <laughs> like, it's just, it's a really, really, really strong track. Yeah, just uh, to, to, you know, kind of crawl your way through some of that stuff on side two. And then to end up there, you know, like for me, literally, like just waiting for it to be over so I can go to sleep. Yeah. And then all of a sudden it just clicked. I was like, holy shit. Yeah. And I, I get it in that I didn't even have that kind of that strong of that revelation. Um, whereas I kind of had it with what for John. Um, mm-hmm. But I agree it. It felt worth it. Honestly, like when I did that first full listen through where for the dark was a song where it was like, okay, it was a hundred percent worth getting through to here. Like, yeah, I I'd had songs I thought were good. I could have taken or leave in most of the album that first listened through. But yeah. even from that first playthrough, like we're for the dark was one of the tracks. I was like, okay, I'm in. If this is the kind of sound they're going to be producing, I for sure can go back and listen to more. Like it's just yeah. it's so good. Yeah. It was just such a surprise for me. I've seen the cover of this album so many times. It's like this album for me was like a movie I've meant to see for years. And never got around to it. And I just picked it kind of at random. I was thinking of other stuff. And then I just sort of saw it. And I was like, you know what? Fuck it. Let's do this. Because it's so different than everything that we've done to this point. And I wanted an excuse to listen to it. I think if we hadn't had those two weeks to listen to it, I wouldn't have connected with it as much as I did. But because I just kept putting it on and putting it on and putting it on, mostly at work. And just it just kind of became the soundtrack of my life for two weeks. Um, I started connecting with it. I started remembering the words. I started remembering how the songs went and what was coming next. And then, yeah, and then I connected with Work for the Dark just kind of by accident. And I'm really glad we did this album, even though when we started this episode, we were talking about how we neither one of us really connected with it. And I realized as we've been talking about it, that's not true for me. <laughs> yeah, I was thinking the same thing, honestly. Like as we started going through track to track and just talking about it, I really enjoyed this album a lot more than I thought I did. Yeah. I think it just it's so good. Like it just it really genuinely surprised me that I went from, oh, this is the most generic 70s rock album I've ever heard, to goddamn, like this this album's full of talent and presence of mind and fun adventures with like the instruments they use and the sounds they make but it never feels amateurish or unpolished it's just it's a very solid solid album fun thing actually i was thinking because realistically anybody playing this back is going to be listening to the like the spotify playlist that's where i listen to it presumably that's where you listen to it as well yeah i wanted to quickly touch on just my thoughts on the bonus tracks so okay can't take it no thank you that song yep. was great when it was three minutes. I don't need an extra minute and 15 seconds of it. <laughs> <laughs> Without You, the mono studio demo, very, very good. Oh, much better. I, I liked it much better than I liked the kind of the original track on the album. Um, okay. photo- the actual demo, not just the one that sounds like a demo yeah. compared to the others. Yeah, exactly. Um, photograph, meh. Take it or leave it. 
kind of like better yeah. days for me. Decent, nothing spectacular. Um, yeah. Believe me, I actually really like the alternate version. I don't <laughs> know what it was. It just, that one clicked with me in just a much clearer way than the original P version did. And then like, no matter what, the mon it's again it's another mono studio demo and it's it's very very good i think it it loses some of the impact that the original has a part of that is just because it's not the full track um but it it delivers a very similarly pleasant experience just in a different way Mm -hmm. it's hard for me to kind of vocalize how that works but a hundred percent i would recommend anybody who liked without you to give this like mono recording demo a shot because it's it's just very good and it's it's very good in a very unexpected and different way for me mm-hmm. but i just figured if we're going to be using the spotify playlist at least touch on them but yeah no thanks i don't need an extra minute of i can't take it it's very yeah it's a very good song but it, it's a very good place to end it <laughs> where they do yeah because <laughs> yeah the next minute of it is just the same thing it feels like some studio producer was just like, throw another chorus on there. And it just, it loses that, that kind of edge, that polish it has. I would argue it's probably the other way around where that was the original version. And the producer oh, yeah. was like, lose that extra <laughs> chorus. Yeah. That makes much more sense. It's just, yeah. <laughs> like where I can't take it ends very, very good where I can't take it had an alternate ending. Not so good. Yeah. <laughs> uh... It's like fucking Lord of the Rings. <laughs> the movie ends like six times. Right? Eight hours was fine. I don't need another four. Thanks. Exactly. <laughs> uh, I'd agree. Um, I got to be honest. I didn't really listen to the bonus stuff. Um, I never listened to it on headphones. I never listened to it on purpose. It played a bunch in the background. Like when I put the album on at work and stuff, I never, I didn't really turn them off, but I also kind of stopped listening at that point. Fair enough. I would agree that without you, the demo version is interesting. Um, and that no matter what I like, because I like those two songs anyway, um, I think I sort of noticed them more. It's interesting to hear where songs come from. I will always agree with that. I like listening to demos sometimes. Yeah, see where songs it's, come it's from. It's fun to see kind of, yeah, where it started. Yeah. Yep. So as an album that we both didn't think we connected with. Turns out we really did. Yeah. Um, I would recommend listening to this album. I know we, we tell everybody with every album, like, give it a shot. You never know. Um, this is one I wouldn't say listen to it casually. You know, Bones UK, the, you know, the Rex and stuff like you could listen to those albums casually, I think, and still enjoy them. Yeah, this isn't one you probably could do that with. Um, This is one you got to put some time into listening to and one that you have to sort of give the music time to sort of grow on you, I would say, especially if you're not coming from a place where this is the kind of music you listen to normally. But I think it's a really great album. And I think it's a it's a real testament to the talent that was in this band that unfortunately was lost in 1975. Yeah, absolutely agree. Um, I, yeah, I would recommend. Yeah, take take some time, give yourself a chance, give it some headphone listen, give it you know, wide room stereo listen. Um, I guarantee you'll find it at least one track on this album that just really speaks to you. And it's just, yep. and that's just a product of incredibly talented musicians. And it was, yeah, it was a nice, really great surprise. Yep. You'll find our two picks on our Spotify playlists. Just look for me, Bryn, on Spotify. Um, it's shared. Um, Steven, you got your shared? Or you got that done yet? Um, I hope I have it shared. <laughs> I, I did this like three times to make sure. 
Um, yeah, so so you should be able to find me on Spotify under Steven now with a V. Um, the playlist is called Life to Labyrinth Faves. So that's where I'll be throwing all of mine. And yes, it looks like it is shared. Mine's just called Life to Labyrinth, but it's the only one that's got anything close to that. Yeah, mine's um, called Life to Labyrinth Fave Tracks. So should be pretty easy yeah. to find us. Yeah, it should be pretty easy to find. And yeah, another another album. You know, I was thinking, it's the end of our first month, and our theme song by my former co-worker, Devin Rose, who has so graciously allowed us to use his music for this. Um, I'm going to play the whole song as the outro, I think, oh, yeah. <laughs> since we've already gone two hours. <laughs> um, if you're looking for Devin, it's D-E-V-O-N-R-O-S-E, Devin Rose. I found him on Spotify. Um, I know he's on Bandcamp. You know, it's in the outro. Presume he's on the other streaming services. He's just a really good guy. He hasn't put any music out in a few years. He writes all this kind of crazy synthesizer music that he uses all these old like synthesizers for. Nothing that he did is on um, computers. It's all these really old synthesizers that he's collected over a lot of years. So give him some love because he totally just... And not having spoken to me in years, you know, I fired him an email. I tracked him down through some former co-workers. He's a bit of an elusive guy, as you'd expect for someone who makes synthesizer music. <laughs> and, uh, you know, show him some love. And because uh, he's he's a good guy and he doesn't have a lot of plays. And I think I think his stuff is really interesting. Yeah, I, really um, I don't know if it would suit doing on the podcast because there's no words to it. Mm. Be sort of difficult to do instrumental music, which is something I've kind of been thinking about lately is can we do instrumental music on this podcast? And maybe we can, but I'm not sure. Yeah. That's something we for sure would have to workshop because it'd be a totally different format. Yeah. But yeah, I agree. Go give Devin a listen. Yeah. Give him our thanks. Check him out. Yeah. Give him a like, give him a listen. If you like his stuff, buy it on Bandcamp. throw him some money. He's a good guy. And maybe if he sees some love, he'll uh, start making music again. And uh, so, yeah, as for us, uh, I am, I'm going to call it. I'm done. I got nothing left to say. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm good. It's a damn good album. Strong sound. It surprised me. I liked it a lot more than I expected I would. Um, yeah, give it a shot. Now, so let's circle on back to where you said you really don't like pop music. <laughs> so, <laughs> yes. What are we doing next? <laughs> so I figured first month out of the way, we did it. We, we kind of refined the system. We're getting there to cap out the second month, like to start it off rather. Sorry. Yeah, I was thinking, why don't we take something that's a bit out of both of our kind of music ranges? We're going to do a little bit of pop, a little bit R&B. Um, be listening to Alessia Cara's The Pains of Growing. Now, the idea for October was we were going to listen to stuff that was sort of where we came from musically. So is this? Oh, you want to do that for the whole month? Well, then we. Well, I figure if I choose one, like my first album that I ever got, and then something that my parents listened to and introduced me to. That's two weeks of the month. And if you do oh, yeah. that for yourself, that's two weeks of the month. I can't do math. So, <laughs> pin and Alessia Carr. We're coming back to that. All right. But All right. if we want to start this off, we're going to go with the first album I ever bought myself, which is the self-titled Gorillas with a Z, because nothing says cool like a Z. Gorillas by Gorillas. Gorillas by Gorillas. Cool. We will get into the background on that. Um, where that band comes from, interesting stuff about them and our thoughts on it, all that next week. So for those of you that are listening and I see that some of you are, thanks so much. We appreciate you and we will talk to you next week. <laughs> <laughs>